It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Vikings, your daily Minnesota Vikings podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked on Vikings. I'm your host, your pal, and the kid you copied off in math class. My name is Luke Braun. You can find me on Twitter at LukeBraunNFL. You can find the show on Twitter at Locked on Vikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, like Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya, whatever you like, or you can go to any of your smart devices and ask them to play podcast Locked on Vikings. Starting off with some somber Vikings news, Hall of Fame defensive end and linebacker Chris Dolman has passed away after a long and arduous battle with brain cancer. Dolman fought valiantly for years, and while his passing is very tragic, I think it makes for a great excuse to make him the Viking of the day. So let's talk about Chris Dolman's story and his life in, in celebration and remember his story as a player and what made him special to us fans. And I think where it starts is that Chris Dolman kind of famously was not a blue chip high school player. He wasn't recruited by all the big schools. He wasn't, you know, a big time hyper athletic, you know, total blue-blooded player. But it wasn't for lack of athletic talent, obviously. That panned out just fine. It was really just because his high school situation was really weird. There were coaching changes going on during his time in high school, and it was a, a bit... Uh, tumultuous, and so the players coming out of the program at that time were receiving the coaching that they needed to really wow a recruiter or really, like, stand out against places where, you know, guys were getting a little bit better coaching, and that's why when he showed up at Pitt, he finally kind of showed out, and over the course of his college career, he went from you know, totally overlooked, almost didn't even get scholarship offers to fourth overall pick in the 1985 draft. And so the Vikings played him at linebacker for his rookie year. And then eventually, so he played defensive end throughout most of college, but he kind of flipped and, and played a little bit of linebacker. And the Vikings at that time actually had him pegged as a linebacker. So he played that and he actually played pretty well as a linebacker. But eventually they moved him back to defensive end, which was his natural position and where he really showed out. And that's where he then made like eight consecutive Pro Bowls and kind of started building his Hall of Fame resume. He did spend a few years in Atlanta and San Francisco before coming back in 99 to kind of round out his career as a Viking, which I think is always really special. And then, of course, his time after... Uh, the NFL has been sort of defined, at least in our memories now, is going to be defined by being inducted into the Hall of Fame and coming down with a brain disease called glioblastoma. It's a kind of cancer. It resulted in numerous tumors that he's had both chemotherapy and surgery to remove. It put him in a wheelchair. It made him lose strength in the left side of his body, and it was ultimately just a brutal fight, and anybody who ever asked him about it got that answer. Just, it's it's brutal, and it's the hardest thing he's ever done, and the hardest thing he's ever contended with, and I, I mean, these athletes are really a different breed, man. They are just different. The, the DNA that they have to fight and fight and fight in the face of something absolutely horrible and terrifying as brain cancer and something that puts them through so much hell as all of that chemo and surgery and just the sickness itself and being able to continually fight through that is, is nothing short 
of inspiring. And, and that's the kind of thing that, I mean, yeah, Hall of Fame career is great and appreciating that is awesome, but I don't know. That's the thing that I take the most inspiration from. Whatever you're going through at home, in the name of Chris Dolman, fight like hell, man. Moving on from that, I originally was going to do some cap stuff today, uh, but I think in in honor of Dolman's career and his time in Minnesota and and just like in celebration of his life, let's do I next week was going to do a postmortem on the front seven, uh, specifically focusing on you know pass rush and run defense and stuff. And I think in honor of Chris Dolman, let's just do that today. We'll do the cap stuff next week. And so with the front seven, the way that I want to kind of evaluate this, we'll look at like grades and stuff if there's anything interesting there, but mostly I want to talk about production. And I think, you know, at the cross-section of those grades and of production by a number of different measures that we have to kind of measure defense, what I want to stray away from is like tackles and sacks. I don't think that those really get to uh, or really like tell us how good a defensive player played right because for one I mean a sack can be a cleanup sack and somebody else got pressure right that is something that a lot of the rotational defensive linemen got a lot of cleanup sacks from pressure that like Daniel Hunter really created you know Daniel Hunter flushes someone out of the pocket or makes them run around and while they're running and scrambling and panicking then suddenly you know Jaleel Johnson who has just finally beaten his guard is right there to clean it up and he gets the sack but he did really earn it, right? And I think the same way is with tackles, and tackles can actually be a bad thing, too. If you were in coverage and you get a tackle, that probably means your guy caught it, so that's not a very good statistic anyways. So what if we took tackles, but only tackles that constituted a loss for the offense? And we can use something like EPA, where a positive EPA play, uh, expected points added, means you got closer to scoring, and a negative EPA play means you got further away from scoring. You know, going from first and ten to, say, second and ten because of a zero-yard run, that brought you further away from scoring. Teams score less often from second and ten situations than they do from first and ten situations, obviously, because they have one less down. And you can look at how many times you did that, call it a run stop, and that is a, a pretty good stat by which to evaluate defensive players like, you know, uh, linemen and, and linebackers. And I think a similar logic applies to pressure. We can just look at how many times you got pressure and say, all right, process over results, right? Pressure over time is going to eventually lead to sacks, even if, you know, maybe this season, and this was especially true for, like, Daniel Hunter in college, right, where he got a ton of pressure, but it didn't turn into sacks, but you could kind of say, yeah, that's probably not going to continue to happen in the pros, because if you can consistently get pressure, like, that's a lot more predictive and stable, Guys can get pressure at a pretty stable level that is pretty, you know, predictable. If you get this much pressure over one season, you're going to kind of get that much pressure continually. And sacks are the thing that you don't have as much control over because the quarterback can just throw the ball. You can't do anything about that. Or he can maybe just run away and be faster than you. You know, you can't really do anything about having played more guys like Russell Wilson and less guys like Matt Stafford or vice versa. And so it kind of gets a little bit noisy. Looking at pressure can kind of predict sacks and predict uh, you know, that sort of production better than sacks themselves can uh, and can give us a, a much better picture. So we're going to kind of look at, at that type of stuff, look at the grades as well, and hopefully that can like piece together a good story where we can get a handle on the front seven. Real quick, uh, before we go deeper into that and start talking about it, uh, I want to plug something on Locked on Redskins, the Washington version of this podcast. They actually spoke with Kurt Cousins and did a whole podcast full uh, wall-to-wall with Cousins on that podcast. So if you want to hear Kurt Cousins talk to a Locked on host, uh, they talked to him over there. Uh, it's, it's a Super Bowl week episode that they're doing. Obviously, this is the last time that we're going to talk before the Super Bowl. 
And uh, they they got to talk to Kirk Cousins mostly about Kyle Shanahan and that scheme and stuff like that and his relationship with Shanahan since Cousins was coached by Shanahan a few years ago. But hey, I mean, he's our guy, right? So go go uh, check that out and uh, listen to Kirk Cousins and that can be your Super Bowl preview from the Locked On Network. Also, as it is Super Bowl week, let's talk a little bit about some of the Super Bowl props. So I actually bet a lot on the 49ers. I just, I I really like the situation that they're in because they essentially beat both us and the Packers with run game. And that means that there's a lot of play action concepts. I think Shanahan has up his sleeve and I don't think Spagnuolo is going to know what hit him. And I don't think there's a way to scout for that. I think they're going to do some really new, interesting stuff. I'm super excited for this, uh, but I bet that the 49ers money line, I bet on Jimmy Garoppolo being Super Bowl MVP. I took a weird one uh, that the first team to score will not go on to win the game. And I, I, I just like the odds of that one because I think this is one that's going to be kind of a back and forth sluggish contest. I, I really don't see this one going the way of like the uh, the Seahawks Broncos Super Bowl a few years ago where it was like the, the Seahawks got that safety right off the bat and everything just kind of unraveled and fell apart. And if you think I'm dumb and wrong and want to uh, make a little bit of money on that, then you should go to mybookie.ag. It's my favorite uh, online sports book for sure. I love their website. I love how easy it is to poke around and browse and find the bets that you want, or if you want to build your own bets, they have a prop builder that allows you to say, you know, hey, no, I just want to bet on how many yards Raheem Mostert's going to get. You can do that, and they'll give you an over-under. They pay out as soon as those bets cash, and there's there's no delay, there's no sketchiness, and honestly, it's been a really, really fun way. It's my been my first year gambling, and this season has been a ton more enjoyable because of it. I've had a bunch of fun putting in my bets every week and seeing how I do. So head on over to mybookie.a G promo code locked on when you sign up and they will double your first deposit. It's free gambling money. So that's mybookie.ag promo code locked on. Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Locked On Podcast Network in this crazy, unprecedented and unnerving time. I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you. 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash LOCKEDONNBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours. And you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. That's lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and a respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. Moving on, I want to start with the run defense. And overall, the Vikings had a pretty good run defense over the course of the season. If you look at a DVOA, which is a metric on football outsiders, and basically what that is is an established expectation for each down and distance and situation and all that. You know, on third and six, teams convert, you know, this often. On first and ten, you know, teams tend to get this many yards. And, you know, they, they use a lot of historical data to kind of establish a baseline of, like, what's reasonable to get. And then it's a plus or minus uh, relative to that. You assign a value to each play that way, cumulatively add it up, and that's your DVOA. By that metric, the Vikings were ninth in the league in run defense. They were fourth in the 
league last year, so it's a regression, but it's not a catastrophic regression. I mean, they didn't even fall out of the top 10. So it was still like a very good unit, but there were problems that existed this year that didn't exist last year. So, you know, let's look into why both of those things are true. And for, from the positive angle, I mean, we got to talk about Eric Kendricks, right? He was the the all pro, the absolute stud penetrating through the line, uh, you know, always in the right gap. And I think the Vikings generally did a good job of that. Even the players that I'm not a huge fan of were did a good job of like being in the right place. And when it comes to run defense, I mean, you basically have, if you have enough defenders, everybody is just supposed to fill a gap and don't let the guy get through your gap. And that, a lot of times it's as simple as that, and it's on the offense to make it harder than that. And so from that angle, the Vikings did a really good job. And Eric Kendricks is a huge part of that. Anthony Barr is the next biggest part of that. Both of those guys were extremely productive in the run game. And then, of course, you know, Daniel Hunter and Everson Griffin for edge rushers were disproportionately productive in the run game. And there's uh, some theories as to, I mean, obviously because they're good is a huge part, but there's also a, a theory, I think, to why so much of the production in terms of actual run stops, you know, the tackles that constitute a loss for the offense came on the edges and came on the second level. That's where all the good plays were, be made, were being made, and not so much on the interior with Linval Joseph and Shamar Stefan or whoever happened to be there. So Mike Zimmer was actually asked about this, and, and he actually said, you know, somebody asked him about Shamar Stefan's play over the course of the year, and he said, yeah, I was pretty happy with it. You know, he sucked up a lot of double teams, he was in the right place at the right time, and, and he sprung everybody else loose. So he essentially said, hey, you know, Eric Kendricks had a great year, and part of that was enabled by Shamar Stefan, you know, eating up the right personnel and creating holes for Eric Kendricks to then explode through. And I think that that's a really weird point because, and this has been measured, and they, they, they chart this now at ESPN, he wasn't double teamed more often than really anybody else's defensive tackles. In fact, he and Linval Joseph were both double teamed at a lower rate than most everybody. Joseph was doubled, actually, I think, an, aver for, an average for, like, nose tackles, and uh, Stefan was double-teamed, like, less than everybody's three technique. So I, I think here's the deal. The Vikings had two nose tackles, and the point of having two nose tackles was so you could have a good run defense at the the cost of pass defense. And I disagreed with it when it happened. I still disagree with it now, but that was the plan. And so the question of did that pay off is a complicated one, because if you look at the production of those nose tackles, it didn't really pay off. They weren't productive at all. In fact, Shamar Stefan was in the bottom five in terms of run stops generated per snap. He was a bottom five production defensive tackle by like most metrics too, and he wasn't any better in the past. So he just kind of didn't get production all the time. But as I already talked about, the guy who got the tackle isn't necessarily the only person being productive on that play. And his grades definitely reflect that. His his grades from PFF are a lot more positive. They're like average, right? They're average to below average, like a little bit, but they're mostly like kind of middle of the road grades. When that is paired with bottom five production, you kind of get that story told of like, yeah, no, he didn't get the tackle, but he did well enough on most of these plays. So I think if you wanted to be really, really generous to Shamar Stefan and to Linval Joseph, you could say that they played at an average level. I'm not quite willing to be that generous. I really do think that from the defensive tackle position, you do need a little bit of production so that it doesn't all always fall on the linebackers, because then what you get is situations like Eric Wilson in the divisional round, where they can just run at the linebacker they know is a backup 
and that guy's not going to be Eric Kendricks, and he's going to overrun plays and be out of his gap, and then they're going to gash you, and that's kind of what happened. Not to mention the pass rush issue, and I'll talk about that a little more, but the pass rush issue of, you know, that I've talked about a ton on this podcast of edge rushers getting pressure, but because there's no interior push, it's a lot easier to evade, and so that pressure is cheapened. And if you look at the effects that the Vikings got for this trade— in their run defense, which is, you know, sucking up double teams and, you know, creating like clogged up middles and forcing runs to go outside, I think you got kind of similar production from three techniques who are better at penetrating. You know, a really great way to force a running back to bounce a run outside like you want them to so that the, they're running at Daniel Hunter now. And that's, you know, that's the guy you want to be the key on the play. And they make the Daniel Hunter the key on the on the player Griffin if they're going to the other side when they bounce it outside. You penetrate. That's how you get a guy in the backfield, and then he has to bounce it outside when he other when the, when the play isn't designed for him to do that. And that's how you get great Daniel Hunter run stops or really good pursuit from guys like Barr and Kendricks who have great lateral range. But I think to the point that Zimmer made and to the point that a lot of people have made, I think that there is definitely some truth to it that, yes, you know, you had two nose tackles in the middle, so they bounced everything outside and your edge rushers cleaned up a bunch, and when they didn't clean up a bunch, you know, you had bigger gaps for the linebackers to come penetrate through, and therefore both the linebackers were extremely productive, and they both had really good seasons against the run. Barr and Kendricks, great against the run this year. Kendricks, of course, kind of overshadowed Barr because he had just such a lights-out season, but Barr had a really nice year against the run. So overall, it's difficult to argue with the results, right? The production looked the way that it's supposed to look if the plan was discourage them from running up the middle, make them bounce a bunch of runs outside, and then use your really talented players who are specifically good at stopping that to stop it. But I think that puts the, like, in terms of sustainability and repeatability for next year, that puts a little bit too much of the onus on linebacker play that's probably going to regress. I mean, it's going to be really hard for Eric Kendricks to repeat what he did this year. Usually these lights out years, you come back the next year, of course they're not going to be as good again. That'd be insane. Not to mention, they have to stay healthy, and if they're not, and you have to get, you know, backup like Aaron Eric Wilson, or even if, like, Cameron Smith comes in and decides to be a backup, you know, makes himself a backup, or or if they want to start picking on Ben Gedeon, who I also think is worth mentioning as somebody who is really, really good at run fits, and, you know, really good at, like, being in the right place. He's better than Eric Wilson as at that, always has been. That's why he keeps beating him in camp battles. Um, but, you know, when you start to, if you have any holes in the armor here, any chinks in the armor that can be taken advantage of, you know, teams are going to be able to do that, and this kind of leaves you very little margin for error, this particular thing. And doing it this way, is it really worth it to sacrifice as much pass rush up the middle as you sacrificed to get this good of run defense? Personally, I say no. And I, I think, you know, it's difficult to argue that they didn't get what they paid for, but I think they paid too much for it. And I still think that defensive tackle is a pretty big need going into the offseason. I'm definitely going to be paying attention to the draft picks because I, I think they're going to want to get somebody in the second or third round. That's where they love to pick defensive line, even the fourth round. Love to pick defensive line there. And, and I really hope that they get an influx of new talent. Now, from a uh, a rotational perspective, of course, you know, Afadio Denebo, he wasn't as good against the run. His, his role was more in pass rush. I'll talk about him later. Armin Watts got more run stops uh, on a per snap basis than any other defender on the team. He only played 67 run snaps, so we have a little bit of a sample size issue here, but if that were extrapolated over a full season, which would be an irresponsible thing to do, but if we did it anyways, he would be the best run defender on the team. So I think he's kind of being groomed to take over one of these defensive tackle spots, and I would love to get an influx of young talent to take over at the other one. You could save a little cap that way, get a little younger, and I think that's something the Vikings should be looking to do. But run defense is not all the front seven does. We'll talk about pass rush here coming up. 
Moving on to pass rush, I think the logical place to start is with Daniel Hunter and Everson Griffin, right? Daniel Hunter logged 88 pressures on the year, 67 for Everson Griffin. Those are pretty remarkable numbers from the edge rush positions. I mean, they were just incredibly productive. That's not news to everybody, but that's something that we kind of have to start with, right? And so, okay, why were they so good? Well, Griffin is has really become a master of technique over the course of his career, and he still has plenty of athleticism, but his technique is really what's making him win. He has this absolute absolutely disgusting spin move. He has incredible speed to power. That's the way that both he and uh, Daniel Hunter prefer to win. I think that's the, the one that they're best at. And what speed to power is, is where you speed rush, meaning you rush upfield really fast and you try to get the tackle moving upfield with you because they're trying to stop you and run you upfield. And then on a dime, you charge right into them and then turn it into a bull rush while their momentum is still carrying them perpendicular to you. And it gives you a good leverage advantage. And they're incredible at this move. And this is where a lot of their pressure has come, not to mention just like good swim moves and rips and kind of classic defensive line stuff. Uh, Elsewhere on the defensive line, you had a problem, right? You had this issue of interior rush. And again, they weren't, uh, especially Shamar Stefan, wasn't sucking up double teams. And when he was left one-on-one with someone's sixth round guard, he wasn't winning that battle. He was involved on 300 pass rushing snaps. So this is not just like a run-stopping guy that came, I mean, that, that was kind of the rationale that was given to us when we said, hey, you know, why are you giving Shamar Stefan the contract you're giving? They're saying, well, he's a run-stuffer, right? We want him for our run defense. He played 300 passing snaps. That's like half of them. And he only logged six pressures. And if you're going to be a defensive lineman and you're not going to suck up double teams and you're not going to have more pressures than that, you're not going to generate more pressure than that, you're just not doing anything. It's just having 10 people on a whole bunch of those snaps. That's just not good enough. And and what the Vikings need is an improvement there. You want to know what takes the Vikings, quote unquote, over the hump? There were a couple of questions in the mailbag that are like, okay, how do they, you know, improve this team? They seem like they had all the pieces together and they still just like weren't quite good enough. That's where they improve. There is a huge opportunity for improvement by getting pressure up the interior. The Vikings were unable to generate that no matter who they had in there. Sometimes on third downs, they'd bring in a Fadio Denebo and Stephen Weatherly, and those guys did get a little bit of pressure from the interior, you know, having like four defensive ends across the line. But I have had this critique for the Vikings for a while. I think this is a a critique that starts from roster construction and has a root in in scheme and in in idea. But they do not have on their roster right now a natural three-technique defensive tackle. They had people play three-technique. They had a defensive end play three technique. That that's Afadi uh, Odenabo. They had a nose tackle play three technique. That's Shamar Stefan. They had a linebacker play three technique in Hercules Mata'afa, but they never have had a natural three technique defensive end. And that's a criticism that I have. Now here's the thing. Pass rush is still very good. They still generated a ton of pressure because Griffin and Hunter are so very good. But like I've mentioned a whole bunch and mentioned already. It's cheapened when you don't have interior pressure. If you just imagine a pocket and, uh, you know, an edge rusher that's quick enough to get around the tackle and, uh, you know, kind of arm bar underneath them and, and, uh, you know, get that up swipe and, and get through, then the quarterback can just step up if the, the guard and the centers are in the cent the, the guards in the center get an, uh, enough of an anchor where they don't give up any space, you ha- you leave no space for the edge rushers to work with. They have to get around that edge so quickly, otherwise the quarterback has, you know, five yards of room to just step up and run around 
then you know you kind of cheapen their ability to get pressure and the fact that they still got as much pressure as they did and the way that PFF logs it is you know if you moved the quarterback off of their spot or messed up their timing it counts as a pressure so when you force them to step up it counts as a pressure but it doesn't disrupt the play as much so all of that pressure was cheapened and that makes things really hard on the back end and in coverage we'll talk about that next week but a lot of the coverage issues kind of start with the Vikings didn't force them to throw quickly enough because they didn't have any interior pressure. You just have to do better than getting pressure less than 2% of the time as a defensive tackle. You just have to do better. It is as simple as that. They just didn't have the horses to do it, and I think this is where Linval Joseph age, Joseph's age kind of starts to show, although he does come, come off the field on uh, classic passing downs, like most teams do with their nose tackles. So it's a little bit less about him and a little bit more about not having a three technique that you can use in passing situations. I think that that is something that if you don't fix in this offseason, this 2020 offseason, it's inexcusable. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about with regard to pass rush is Anthony Barr because again this is a question that I got on the mailbag yesterday and you know why doesn't he pass rush more and all that um, and I've explained this before on the podcast but in case you missed it or you're unfamiliar you want a refresher uh, essentially this is how protections work on the offensive line. If you are an offensive lineman, say the center or the quarterback responsible for designating protections, usually you will call out who the Mike linebacker is. They'll and you'll you can actually hear them say it uh, on broadcasts. You'll probably be able to hear it in the Super Bowl. You know, fifty four is the Mike, fifty two is the Mike, or whatever. And that tells everybody who the middle linebacker is. And as a lineman, your job is to protect however many people out from the linebackers. Okay, if you are, you know, you're responsible for two guys away. So you, you once the mic is identified and they say, okay, 54, I count one player to the right, two players to the right, that's my guy. That's who I'm blocking. In zone, it's a little bit different. You kind of just block whoever's in front of you. Uh, but the principles stay kind of similar and the quarterback can slide protections. So, you know, say, so say everybody's got their assignments and then right before the snap, Kirk Cousins is actually pretty good at this. He, he will kind of uh, throw out a hard count, and he'll get somebody who was going to blitz, who runs up to the line and totally fell for it, and then has to back back off. And now he's been caught, and you know he's blitzing. So you slide the protection to his way, and you essentially say, okay, hey, they're sending an extra person, so we need to take somebody, say they're sending an extra person on our right side, so we need to take somebody from the left and have them block that way, and everybody will shift accordingly, and you kind of, you know, you've got a code word that, that slides that protection. So the thing about Anthony Barr is that he's known as a linebacker that blitzes a lot, he does blitz a fair amount of the time. He's usually a top 15 blitzing linebacker in terms of frequency and usually top five in terms of actual efficiency. He wasn't quite as good as efficiency at efficiency this year. He got pressure about 7% of the time. That's pretty good for a line. It's like not bad for a linebacker, but it's certainly not his best and what like we've come to expect from him, but it wasn't anything to be concerned about. But he rushes often enough that teams always know, hey, you know, when 55 is on the line of scrimmage, you have to slide the protection over his way. And so then he will back off into coverage. You've slid the protection his way. Now you have assigned an extra person over there to block. Nobody. You've made them waste a person, and now they're playing with 10 men on offense, and you have an advantage. You can blitz somebody from the other side or use that just to, like, have an extra person in coverage. The disadvantage for the Vikings is that it requires very 
very, very difficult assignments from Anthony Barr. So he has to get from that line of scrimmage spot that fooled the offense all the way to a regular coverage landmark in the same amount of time that most linebackers can start from, you know, seven yards deep and get to that coverage landmark. So it's a more difficult assignment. And this leads to some poorly graded plays from PFF. It leads to some coverage breakdowns. All in all, I think it, we, we've seen over the years that this is more than worth it but he does end up getting like lower PFF grades because of it. I, In my opinion, unfairly, I, I don't really agree with PFF's grade. I think they were way too harsh on him in coverage, but we'll talk about that in the coverage episode that's coming up next week. Point being, that's a more detailed explanation of how the Vikings use, it, use Anthony Barr to affect the pass rush and to get things like free sacks for Mackenzie Alexander, which is something that happens a lot, or even like, you know, Stephen Weatherly, who got uh, four sacks and, five, and, and a hit, or even just create one-on-one situations for Daniil Hunter and or Everson Griffin. You know, it makes it that much harder to chip those guys with a tight end and neutralize them when you also have to worry about Anthony Barr, and sometimes you will commit resources to worrying about Anthony Barr in the pass rush, and then he's not even pass rushing because he's rangy enough to get back into coverage and still take away a route. It's like getting a two-for-one with Anthony Barr, and I think that that's the value that the Vikings paid for, and in my opinion, they got it. So, on that note... I am going to wrap up this episode of Locked on Vikings. I'll see you all next week on the other side of the Super Bowl. Maybe we'll talk about it if it's interesting. Otherwise, we'll just keep going with this postmortem and salary cap stuff. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at LukeBronNFL. The show's on Twitter at LockedOnVikings. This show is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts or just ask your smart device to play podcast, Locked on Vikings. I'll see you all next week. And as always, Skull. Hey, Locked on Minnesota listeners. This is Tony Abbott here to tell you about the brand new Locked On Wild podcast, where my co-host Joe Bully and I break down the Minnesota Wild every single day. How can you listen? Just search for Locked On Wild in your favorite podcast app and subscribe to bring Locked On Wild to your device every day.